0: Friday morning, July 17th, 2020, 2.35 a.m. My spirit has been revved up. Haven't made it to bed yet. Been sitting here thinking about a broadcast, podcast, and falling to sleep in the chair off and on as I contemplate and pray, and yet really feeling the need to say something <clears throat> so I came across something from an earlier devotion that I'd written time of contemplation going through a hard time in my life at the time and it started with an excerpt from the book The Screwtape Letters by the way I'm Kenny Price And you're listening to Quad Dot Rocks, God the World, and other things. And my mission still is, in spite of everything that's going on in the world, is to advance equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. And as things continue to play out, I heard on a podcast earlier tonight someone make the comment, and I think it's a really good evaluation that never in the history of the world has the entire humanity put life on hold for what very quickly is becoming an entire calendar year. It's never happened in the history of the world. So against that backdrop, you have to say, and I've held judgment as to exactly what's going on, but in fact, this is a supernatural doing of the Almighty God. Never in the history of the world has the world unilaterally agreed without convocation, without meeting, without the meeting of the minds, meeting in some clandestine room, never in the history of the world has what's happening now ever happened. It is an action of the Almighty God. Make no mistake about it. And these are serious times. And my mission is to bring a word of encouragement in the midst of these agitated times, and I still hold to that position in the middle of the night. And yet so many questions run through my head. What do we do about this? What does this say? How do we move forward? God's impressed me in my spirit that prepare for a hard landing. I don't know all that that means. But as I shared that out on Facebook, I got several responses back to where God is telling that person basically the same message. And so as much as we want life to continue on as normal, As we want to believe that life is normal, we have to see that the world has been commandeered in an effort to define the new normal. And we have to admit that all of these circumstances regarding the Wuhan virus shows to be working off some sort of a playbook because we've had an entirely new set of descriptors and phrases that have risen up around the virus that did not exist prior to this happening on the planet. But the whole concept of social distancing, of being sequestered in place, and it almost reminds me of marching instructions that were given to me when I was in the band at Trinity High School in Eulis, Texas, we had all sorts of terminology and phrases that existed only in that little world so that we knew what to do at the appropriate time in trying to present a cohesive demonstration for the people to enjoy at halftime football game. That's the sense I get from all of this with the virus. And in total contradictory to common sense and the truth, People continue to do that which is unthinkable and shutting down the governments, shutting down the businesses, sequestering the people. It's only possible without much harm and heartache to those who are well invested in their portfolios. Yet we're reminded that as it comes time to pay the piper, that these governments who have shut down the businesses that pay their paychecks, that pay for the support of the local governments and the central governments, that there will not be the income needed to pay the bills. So we can see by their actions that they are creating their own demise, yet they don't see it as demise. They will just see it as further taxation and deeper reach into our pockets. Yet money just doesn't come out of thin air. All of the teachers who have been paid for not working, and my wife and I got into a discussion about this even uh, this past evening. And you can say, well, some of the teachers have been working and they've been working harder than ever in preparing lessons for children to learn online, but yet we know that that's not working. And in fact, for whatever the teachers have done in that regard, and I appreciate their effort. It's nothing near having to wrangle and wrestle and plead and work with a classroom of students day in and day out. It's not the same. It's not the same work. And yet they've been paid at the same pay. Hey, I'm thankful it's happened. But do you really think that type of activity is going to continue to be able to be possible when the state coffers are not going to be able to pay the paychecks? You cannot take all of the businesses offline in your entire society, and then expect for there to be revenue to pay the bills. It's not going to happen. So in time, the action by these errant states that's being allowed by the central federal government, no one is putting a stop to it, is going to come home to roost. Now, those who are in governance over us will not step in and take blame. Instead, they will tax you and tax me And the burden will become heavier and heavier. But don't misunderstand me. This is not about a question and my concern in the middle of of the night over taxation. This is a concern that, folks, we are in catastrophic spiral downward. And I'm not a purveyor of gloom and doom. The message I have for you here in just a moment is very much the opposite. But I'm telling you that all of us have to wake up to the fact that this is the most extraordinary time <clears throat> in the history of mankind. You have to come alive to that point if you are going to go through it successfully. And that's my hope for you, is that you will come through this with yourself and that you will come through it abandoned to God. These are times that are taking people and it is cleaving into their brains and it is disassembling them and it is destroying homes. Parents are beating their children to the point of almost death or death. Child abuse and home domestic violence is through the roof. Psychiatric problems are through the roof. Depression is through the roof. I heard someone talk the other day about the concept of Uh, the broken heart syndrome, and it's on the increase. But all of these maladies that are being thrust upon humanity because humans are not designed to take this type of treatment for an extended period of time. One of our forefathers here in our country said, give me liberty or give me death. Talking to a relative whose cousin came into town from, from Columbia, and this relative said uh, that they're on lockdown in Colombia. See, you don't hear about that. But when she said lockdown in Colombia, they are locked down in Colombia, she said, that you are not allowed to go out. Now, evidently, they're distributing food and supplies to the people, but have you heard about that? that they're being locked down. You know, in China, they said that's actually how they supposedly brought the numbers down is that literally the people in a very Orwellian dystopian fashion were just locked into their homes and were forbidden to go out. If they went out, they had to have certain paperwork and all this garbage. But folks, never in the history of mankind. But these are the days that if you are not prepared and if you have not... Uh, done self-evaluation and taken a personal inventory that these are the types of days, and these are the days that is going to unravel you in the end. We will not be able to withstand the onslaught of this situation. Now, again, the question I have, it's supernatural. I think it has the handiwork of God directly on it now. It started with supposedly, a mistake of man. It very quickly filtered into all of the societies within a couple of months. Yet we really, 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 really do not know how it really started. And it raises a lot of questions. Yet it's here. I think that's all we can say, is that the virus is real. At first, I did not hear of people personally who had it, but I now know people who have had it. Some, none have died that I know from the virus, but some came very, very close to death and now are talking about their experience. As a matter of fact, the president of our board of directors for our organization, Transform This City, we had a meeting here by video conferencing last week, And he reported his entire family had it. He really did not go into details about how it was, and we really had no time to discuss it. I would like to soon talk to him more about his experience, but he did say we made it through it. So from that comment, I get the impression that it was not a pleasant experience. But in fact, the overwhelming majority of the people are not dying from it. That's a good news, but... Really, it's the impact and effect that the virus is having on the way that people are governing, and it's destroying the countries. And it's going to plant seeds that are going to come to fruition, and that we are all going to be a part of the aftermath. And so we've got to be prepared. And when I think about God, what are you saying to me regarding prepare for a hard landing that this is one thing I've come to tonight. And it comes out of the screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis. And in the letters, I won't go into full detail, all aspects of the book, but in essence, it is letters from a person in a bureaucracy, or as the book calls it, the lower of hell in administration for the work of Satan. And screw tape writes to his nephew Wormwood, who is a demon in training, but definitely inexperienced and incompetent as a tempter. And so it's a series of 31 letters that Screwtape gives Wormwood detailed advice on various methods of undermining God's word and of promoting abandonment of God in the patient. I'm talking about, uh, the human, uh, That quote was out of Wikipedia, which is a simple go-to thing to get summaries like this. But anyway, this came out of a devotion that I wrote back some time ago when I was going through a really, really hard time and really felt like I was being just kind of pulled apart. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. Have you ever been through something so severe and so overwhelming that you feel like you're just being put in a centrifuge and being pulled apart. That's how I felt, absolutely. And I was reading this book by C.S. Lewis. It's a classic. It has a lot of insight to tell us and kind of give us some ideas on what to look out for or watch for as we go through our spiritual lives. Uh, But anyway, on page 59, um, Wormwood's letter to... I'm sorry, Screwtape's letter to Wormwood that he said as a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, talking about about Wormwood's patient, the human being that's trying to be destroyed. He said as a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, you wanted to detach him from himself and had made some progress in doing so. Now all that is undone. Of course, I know that the enemy, now he's, when he says enemy, keep in mind he's talking about God, also wants to detach men from themselves, but in a different way. Remember, always, that he really likes the little vermin. See, from a demonic standpoint, that's what we are as little vermin. And that he sets an absurd value on the, the distinctness of every one of them. Tremendous insight by C.S. Lewis. See, you and I have personal distinctions that make us unique, and God has designed us that way, and he likes his creativity, his creative act in us, and the fact that each of us are distinct. But he goes on to say, he said, when he talks of their losing their selves, he, talking about God, only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I am afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Hence, while he is delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills to his, he hates to see them drifting away from their own nature for any other reason, and we should always encourage them to do so what an insight that C.S. Lewis gives us into this realm in which we live and this battle for ourselves and this battle for our wills and this battle for our devotion to God and this battle in being abandoned to God. But yet, when we abandon ourselves to God, we do not become an automaton and a mindless drone that in reality, when we abandon ourselves to God, we become more us than we've ever been because we become a pure us. We become unadulterated in the presence of a holy God. And so when we come to a place of saying, I will follow you, I will follow Jesus, that we begin that journey of sanctification, of cleansing to where the day we meet God face to face, the Bible says, that we will be st- we will stand wholly perfected and be the purest us possible. And so when God says, I want you to die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow me daily. He's not talking about the destruction of you and your humanity and the destruction of you and the essence of who he created you to be. He loves that. He loves the the distinctiveness that he made in you. And so Satan's ploy in in an effort to get us to pull away from Almighty God is the first, and I think that C.S. Lewis is right on track, is to get us to pull away from ourselves, to come unraveled. In the book of Revelation, the angel to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 7 says, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then the admonition to the church. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so as we struggle and we fight, and the Bible says that the weapons that we use are not fleshly, they're not of this earth, but they're spiritual weapons found in the book of Romans. But the bottom line is, is that for all of our struggle, that we need to come home. We need to come back to ourselves. And this clamoring for self-will or the release of self-will and becoming all that God wants us to be and yet at the same time, our adversary, the devil, is seeking to detach us from ourselves so that we may then become a free agent and be detached from God. Now, let me, let me remind you that those who have asked the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be your personal Lord and Savior, that salvation is eternal. It is a safeguard that God has given you for eternal life in heaven through the death, burial, and resurrection of the perfect lived life, Jesus Christ, and sealed until the day of redemption through the power of his Holy Spirit. So as a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. I do understand that there are some Christian branches that say that you can, but dear people, that... Eternal life is life eternal, life without end. So when we enter into a personal relationship with the resurrected and living Savior, Jesus Christ, we are sustained and maintained for eternity through his power and his work, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, not our own. But between here and eternity in heaven, a lot can go south. We had someone involved in our ministry that did a great job for us that actually did a church plant in one of the apartment communities where we had full access. And there was a, a family that he was ministering to that were, that were coming on board. It started through the wife, who was a Christian and looking to receive encouragement and uh, support in the hard days of living when you have children. Her husband had come on board, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that he was an ex-convict, was out, got out of prison. He was showing signs of advancement in the faith and showing signs that things were going to be different. And yet one day he told, the guy's name was Jeff. He told Jeff, he said, Jeff, I've had it. You see, there were a lot of things evidently happening in this man's life that seemed to say that God was not there for him. And and as best I can remember, things that were not necessarily under his control or things that he had done wrong, but yet, as Christians, we know just the trials of this life. And so Jeff was working with this couple through all of this. Finally, one day, the man told him, he said, Jeff, he says, I'm going over to the dark side. Folks, he was absolutely serious. He said, I'm going over to the dark side. I'm finished. Jeff told him, don't do that. You will regret it for the rest of your life. Don't do it. I'm begging you, don't do it. The man did it. He left the faith. He went back into the garbage life that he'd lived in prior history, and he walked away. And folks, you may say, well, but Kenny, I don't care how hard it gets, I will never just come that unhinged and go and do the unthinkable and walk away from God and live like a lost person, divorce my wife, leave my kids. But, you know, the Bible warns against having an attitude of arrogance. It really repels our holy God. And this this concept of, of uh, self that power and gain and a sense that we're totally in control and in arrogance we forget, no, that we are totally dependent upon the Holy God. And so in wrong response to life's pressures, any person can crumble and cave. A good friend of mine that uh, was a partner in ministry that we did in our past, he talked about the fact that um, his family were churchgoers. He does not remember there being any type of a fallout at church or or some sort of particular adverse circumstance. But he said that one day his family did not go to the Sunday service. Then the next Sunday something else came up. They did not go to the Sunday service. And in time, the family just quit going to church. Now, I need to say, as a like a little disclaimer here, we understand going to church does not make you spiritual. It doesn't make you a Christian. But the Bible also says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There are side effects that come when we begin to ignore Christ's body, the church. So the family fell away. And so as an older teen, he grew up not going to church but the family considered themselves to be Christian. And this individual did not come back to Christ until later in life as an adult. And so this is really a caution tonight that as we go through these hard times and as we go through this experience of something that's never happened in the history of mankind, that we've got to brace ourselves and we've got to back up and to say, I've got to take some personal inventory because you see the Bible says that Jesus is taking personal inventory. The letters to the seven churches in Asia lets us know that he is walking among the candlesticks and he's taking an evaluation and he is warning that listen to me or I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now that doesn't mean he's going to going to remove your salvation, but can you imagine if Jesus finds you wanting, and he's walking through the corridors of your life, and he sees that you are constantly in rebellion, and you are being overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, and you're listening to the to the uh, jabber jibber jabber of the world, that your mind is being massaged, your mind is being manipulated by the evil one for you to first of all become unhinged from yourself. And the end result is that you will become unhinged from your holy God. And so tonight I want us to stop for just a minute and to take inventory and to come back to your first love. Come back to the person you once were and take a personal inventory on where are you right now in respect to the person you used to be when you were younger. Are you growing old gracefully? If you're 30 years old, do you love Jesus and serve him with the same uh, vim and vigor that you did when you were 15 if you came to Christ early? You know, one of the wonderful things I have in my life to draw uh, upon are the activities that I engaged in when I was a teenager. I became called, I felt a strong call to ministry at an early age, and because I had a church home that really cared about youth and really cared about developing people for future life, that they started a summer youth program to where you could serve as a summer youth intern. And so between the years of my junior and senior year in high school, I applied for a position to be basically a summer youth staff. And it was the real deal. It was very serious. I had to go before a panel, and we were, I was questioned and uh, evaluated before I was allowed to serve. And the work we did as teenagers, I was— 17 years old, but very serious business, carrying out the ministry of the church. So I was a, I was allowed to really flourish and grow in ministry to the church and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The person I worked with, as a matter of fact, I uh, just went to be with the Lord here in the last few months, a man by the name of Tony Dyer. And I tell you, God gave me the privilege to work with Tony Dyer, who was a visionary. Tony was cutting edge and doing things in the early 1970s that no one else was even thinking about. He started a program that he called Disciple Now, and it was a weekend of intense discipleship. Hang on, we'll open up some water here. I've already gone through a bottle, but it was a weekend of intense discipleship for students. Now, this was back in a different day when there was not as much garbage going on with crazy stuff, molestation, that type of thing. But what we would do is we would go to a host home, spend the weekend starting on Friday night, and we would have discipleship training by a mentor, by an adult who cared for us. Now, let me remind you, though, it was... Only boys in a home, and then the girls would be in another home. Um, But today, that wouldn't necessarily matter. I mean, you still have problems. But in those days, it was a sweet time. And so we went through intense training. And come Sunday, we would be together and wrap up Sunday evening. So within just a few days, we would have an intense time of development in our faith. Tony started that. It became a, a nationwide movement. And promoted, especially by our denomination that I'm a part of. So God allowed me to have this beautiful experience under the leadership of Tony Dyer. Just talked to another mentor of mine, a guy that I worked with. Now, he was in seminary when I was in high school. A guy by the name of Keith Moore, who pastors a church in, in uh, Peachtree City, Georgia. And as a matter of fact, found out, I think he's been at the church that he started that church, very successful, for something like 35 years. I'm, I'm hoping to see Keith now that I found out he actually has children, uh, has a daughter that lives here in Nashville. So hopefully we're going to reconnect. It's been quite a long time since I've had a chance to see him. But Keith and I served in ministry together. What, what beautiful memories. We talked the other night, and I was a high school student. He was a, a seminary student. And Keith and I had the privilege. I went to pick him up. I had my 1975 Honda Civic that was like a roller skate with tires. And I made the commitment to go over and pick up Keith. And it was, I think, a Friday evening. We were leaving late because he had school and had responsibilities. He was married. Of course, I was in high school and single, which is a good thing. And I went over to pick up Keith at his apartment. And we took off. For San Marcos, Texas, to spend the weekend doing preliminary work at what was called then San Marcos Baptist Academy, it was for uh, it was a, a student for high school kids. It was a private school where they lived on campus in dormitories. So, Keith and I, here we go. We're going to to San Marcos. What we didn't know at the time. We weren't being honest with each other, but from Euless, Texas, Bedford, Texas, San Marcos was about a five-hour drive, four-hour drive. So here we are, summertime, Honda Civic, 1,200 CCs, which is the size of a small motorcycle engine now. It had 12-inch tires, if you can imagine that. So it was the mini, mini Cooper-sized car, but a really fun car to drive. So Keith and I take off to San Marcos, Texas, in my Honda Civic with no air conditioning. So here we are going back then. The speed limit was 55 miles an hour, supposedly saving gas by orders of the government. But we're going 55 miles an hour down the interstate, windows down, hot. And you know how it gets when the windows are open for a prolonged period of time. It kind of begins to beat you senseless. So here we are driving. It's literally the middle of the night. And we didn't know until we got honest with each other many, many, many years later that at times when we were swapping out driving, both of us were falling asleep at the wheel. It's just the grace of God that we didn't have a crash and suffer terrible consequences for real. But I would go to sleep and I'd wake up further down the freeway, not knowing where I was. But I confessed this to Keith and Keith started laughing and told me, he said, well, I I never told you, but I was doing the same thing. So we make it to San Marcos. And at the time, I, I didn't know where San Marcos was. I knew it was south near San Antonio. So we pull up to get a room. Oh, what happened is we actually went to the school. And the guy, he went by the name Sarge, figure that. We went to the school and he was supposed to have uh, one of the dormitory Rooms open and he he told Keith which one was going to be unlocked for us to be able to sleep there. It had it had beds and showers and a regular dormitory room. Well, I can still remember we got to the the campus, went to the room, locked. Keith said, Well, maybe I misunderstood which room it is. So we went to the next room beside it, locked. We walked around the entire dormitory building. It was all locked up. There was no one around. That was pre-cell phone days for sure. So Keith said, well, I guess we've got to go find a hotel room. So we go to the main area where the hotels were, went to the Holiday Inn. It's probably like 2 o'clock in the morning, and we're worn out. We go in and try to get a room, and the person says, well, there are no rooms. And Keith and I were looking at each other. It's like, What? So we asked them, what What do you mean there are no hotel rooms? Where are we? I mean, we're, we're in San Marcos, Texas. Well, there's a big convention in town this weekend. Of course, we're thinking, you've got to be kidding. And they said, there are no rooms available in the, the city. And Keith said, there's surely got to be someplace. So they said, well, you can check at the women's university that they, at times, will rent out their dormitory rooms. It was, I guess it was San Marcos Women's University or whatever. I don't know the name of it. Well, they're standing waiting for a room also at the Holiday Inn was a gentleman who was heavily intoxicated, very drunk. And Keith just looked at him and he said, Hey, do you want to split put the bill on a room? <laughs> so the guy said, Sure. So we all go over to the the university. Somehow there was somebody there that said, "Yes, you can rent a room. We do that." So they let us in. Of course, by this time, going up the elevator to the to the dorm room, I'm terrified because here we are with this drunk individual I do not know. I'm afraid something serious could happen, but yet trying to save some money. So we get in, and it was a it was a pod that had four uh, bedrooms in it and a, a shared. I guess we had our own bathrooms. But I'm scared to death. We get in. Well, the guy makes it into his room first, and first thing you hear is that he locks his door. He's afraid of us. So we felt relieved that he was more afraid of us probably than we were afraid of him because there was two of us. So anyway, we made it, had a fantastic weekend, and did all the prep work to get ready for several hundred kids who would come to our church camp. So, you know, that's where I came from. That's me. That's where I've come from. And as a as a young man, as a young kid, really, having the opportunity to serve Jesus and to do amazing, powerful things. At that same time, the, we rented uh, Six Flags Over Texas before it was heard of publicly. Of course, you could rent it for corporate events on the days that the parks were closed. But uh, we rented it for what we called Christian family day. It was on Friday of good Friday and in the Metroplex all, or I guess basically in Texas, all the schools were closed back then on good Friday. So the idea was hatched, let's rent it and we'll bring in Christian artists to fill up all the concert venues. And it'll just be a great time of of fun and also enjoying great Christian music. Well, that caught on throughout the entire nation. So That's my background. That's where I come from. And being developed, I can remember, and this is one of the most special times that I remember during that that period of growth as a Christian, that Tony said, we're going to go down to the end room and we're going to get on the floor and I have a cassette that I want you to listen to as we prepare our hearts for this summer in an effort to reach as many kids as we can for Jesus Christ. So we go down to the end room, and the building is still there at this time. It's the building closest to Trinity High School on the north side of that church campus of what was called First Baptist Church in Euless. But we go down there, and we get on the floor. Here all of us are, a team of about six people. And he puts on a, a cassette tape by a man named Stuart Briscoe, and the sermon, it's a famous sermon now called The Man in the Gap, and it's talking about how the scriptures to where God looked for a person uh, who would be the man in the gap, who would stand in this breach in the wall to be counted on. And we just laid there face down. None of us went to sleep. And I listened to this message about God asking, are you willing to be that man in the gap? And folks at that age, hey, I'm all in. Absolutely. And so that's been my life. But you know, then life happens, and there are a lot of things that have occurred between the ages of 17 and the summer of my 18th year when I served the second season on the summer youth team. And a lot of things seeking to unravel me, seeking to pull me apart. You probably have experienced the same thing. That is the condition of life. But where we are now is those pressures – on steroids. And so I want to encourage you, Jesus is watching. He expects for us to go through this with flying colors, with great success, to where we are flourishing and not decaying, and to where we are becoming more like Christ than less like Christ. We are becoming more loving in the midst of increased hate. And in the end, for him to be able to look at us in our eyes, our resurrected human eyes on the day of redemption, when we stand before him, he wants to say, hey, Kenny, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. You see, Jesus is cheering us on. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to be the best us that we can be right now. But we've got to do some inventory. We've got to do some self-evaluation. And we've got to ask ourselves some serious questions on how are we doing. And to be honest about it and to say, hey, I've got to do some house cleaning. I've got to straighten up. I've got to take personal inventory. This is a time for self-reflection to gain yourself back, to not allow the evil one in this fallen world to pull you apart. Because if it happens, they're they're doing it, and Satan is doing it in order to try and to detach you from Almighty God. Now, he knows for the Christian, he can't steal your soul, but he can absolutely wreak havoc in your life. And so I wrote this, and I won't read all of it, but just some excerpts after God giving me just really some insight through the writing of C.S. Lewis, which ultimately tracks back to his word. It says, I have allowed Satan to detach me from myself. Today, I am coming home. Today, I am recovering myself. I am going all in for Jesus. I will return to the commitment to serve Jesus with my life. I will return to the commitment to serve Jesus with my life and do no other. In returning to myself, I am returning to the person God created me to be. And this is just a few of the things that I wrote. And I won't read all of it. But number one, that I'm born again. I'm just affirming that I am born again. You know, in some mentoring past, working with an individual who was several years, many years older than me, but working with him and mentoring him and developing him in his faith. But one of the things that he had a proclivity to do was to fall into times of question to where he questioned if he was even saved. And as a matter of fact, the last time I saw him, it was at a restaurant. He and his wife were there with some other people. And his wife said to me, apart from him, he didn't see her talk to me, but she said that he's he's uh, at it again, having doubts. When he would go into that time, he would begin to drink again. He had a drinking problem. And I don't think he ever made the association with the fact that he perceived that he drank because he was in doubt But yet the proclivity towards alcoholism was actually undermining his self and causing him to detach himself, to detach from himself. You see what I'm saying? That you got to get it understood, where's the cart and where's the horse? And so the first thing we've got to do is understand that, wait, we've got to reaffirm. Well, let me ask you first, are you born again? It sounds like a mysterious thing. Well, it's not possible for a man to be born again. But Jesus used that analogy to confuse those who considered themselves to be wise, but yet they were, they were aberrant children. And he would use that analogy to say, I tell you that you must be born again, that you were born of water the first time, but you must be born of the Spirit the second time. If not, you're a walking dead man. You're a walking dead woman. Your soul is alive. The essence of who you are is here, but your spirit before a holy God is dead. If you depart from this life in that condition that you will be cast away from, and you will be socially distanced forever from an almighty God, and you will spend forever in a real place called hell. The Bible said it is a lake of fire, yet it gives no light. So imagine if you would the molten lava that pours forth from the volcanoes in Hawaii and yet not with light. So the destination for those who leave this planet without the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Bible says that it's the place destined for the devil and his angels, but yet in the end, those who don't accept God's free gift of grace of salvation through Jesus Christ in this planet, while you're here, you're going to spend a very real eternity in hell. You know, what's interesting is that as we deal with that concept, talking to a relative of mine, whom I thought was Christian, when I talked about a very real hell, they got very upset, very upset and said, oh, Kenny, no, 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 Kenny. No, God would never do that. God is love. God would never do that. And I said, that is not the truth. That's not what the Bible says. So I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's a very real thing, and it's very serious. But yet there's no reason for anyone to have to go there because in this bubble of life, it is a bubble of grace to where God is withholding his wrath and his judgment against the ungodly, and he has gone as far as he can go in providing a way of escape but you have to bow the knee. All this garbage going right now with the bowing of the knee. As someone, Phil Robertson said that I'll only bow my knee to King Jesus. I believe it was Phil Robertson. But the fact of the matter is we've got to ask the question, are we born again if we are? This is a time to reaffirm that. The way I'm going back to who I am. I'm a Christian, I'm born again. I'm going back to being a devoted Christian a devoted follower, and all that that means and looks like through the power of God's Spirit working in my life. I'm going to be the best husband I can be. I'm going to be a devoted husband. I'm going to be a devoted lover. I'm going to be a devoted father. Both of my children are are grown men now, have families of their own, just welcomed my youngest son, welcomed his firstborn into the family three weeks ago, uh, just a sweet kid, blessed of God. We're so blessed. We have three grandchildren, and yet I'm still needed as a father. So many times, people raise their children; they allow the the temptations of this world to unhinge them, and they be, they begin to believe the false press that uh, they just really are all of that. You see. Uh, Satan will take someone and bring them into your path of existence and, as a part of temptation, will cause you to believe that, wait, they think I'm something special. Something I learned early on in my ministry years from mentors who taught me, well, you better guard your heart. You better guard your mind. And if someone comes along and says, hey, you're all of that, you know what, you're being set up for a fall. Now, don't misunderstand me. Before Christ... You're all of that to him. But if someone of the opposite sex comes on to you and there's flattery and there's interest and enamorment, you better take a step back. And I'm talking to both male and females. And so a devoted father, it still matters. My kids are grown, but they still need me as a devoted father. I want to be a devoted grandfather. I want to model to my grandchildren the way a a man should be, the way a Christian should be. So you can go on down the line. I want to be a devoted friend. Are you a devoted friend? Are you there for those in your life that you've known um, all your life perhaps, or new friends that you've made? Are you willing to be inconvenienced for them? Are you willing to demonstrate the love of Christ in clear and tangible ways that says to them that they are important and that they matter? So I just want to encourage you tonight. It's 3.26 a.m., Friday, July 17th, 2020, that to put the brakes on for just a second— In the midst of all the turmoil that's going on, put the pause button on and give yourself some time and do a personal inventory and ask yourself, where am I? Have I become hateful to my family? Have I become hateful to my wife? Have I become a nitpicker? How am I as an employee? Do I honor my employees with proper actions and use of time when I'm on they're dull when I'm receiving my pay. Am I a good citizen? So please take this in the spirit that it's intended. It's not a wake-up call to disaster. It's a wake-up call to success to be in this life and the life to come to be the very best you that God intended for you to be. Dear friends, I hope you're having a great sleep right now while I'm talking. But I praise God for what he's done in my life tonight. In my dozing, I'll share this with you, and I won't go into details, but I actually went into some dreams. And uh, I don't hardly ever dream that I remember. I sleep hard. Of course, they tell you that we, or they tell us, whoever they are, but that we do dream, but we may not remember it. And that's me. When I sleep, it's like I'm comatose. But had some interesting dreams that were uh, not disturbing, but I had a sense of uh, coming in contact with people that appeared to be Christians that were in the church. And I'm remembering this, that... I was there with my wife trying to record a podcast, and I was there, you know how dreams are. It was like my office, but for some reason, I had moved out of my office to be more um, just out of the office. And so my wife was working with me, and I told her, I said, I need to get this recording done. I need to get this done. But then I began to notice that people started appearing in the church and this was in the middle of the night. And then it became quite a crowd and people doing various things. And I thought, I never knew that there was this much activity in my church here. And I was the minister. And so activities were going on and, uh, Yet it was not a pleasant feeling. And so at one point I'm in like what would be the church fellowship hall where eating is done. But there were people assembling and gathering. And as pastor of the church, uh, of course, you know, you know who your people are, the people that are regular attenders, and yet these people were gathering for a meeting and I didn't recognize any of them. And in my dream, I'm thinking, well, evidently one of the other ministers here at the church had given permission for someone to meet here. But there was this whole life going on in the night at the church. And, uh, but I remember in the dream that there was one man in particular that came in, and these people were in suits who were gathering in the, the dining area like they were getting ready to have church or something. But I thought, well, wait, I'm on staff here. I'm, one, I'm the pastor, but I don't know that this is happening. And so I approached the individual to say, hey, can I help you? What are you doing? And it's like, well, we're, we're getting ready to have a meeting. So this was happening without my knowledge. And then some crazy things began to happen in my dream, and I woke up. But I think it's the tension— it's the turmoil. It's even the craziness that's happening within the church and the silence regarding activities and actions that are being taken against the church and activities going on that you and I perhaps are not aware of and extrapolating over into what God is saying through me tonight. And don't take that wrong. I don't mean that in a prophetic know-it-all sense. I'm just saying that what he's impressing me in my spirit is that there is an onslaught against the church. There's a lot that's happening that we don't understand. There are things that are going on right in our midst that we're not even aware of. And in the midst of that, God says, I want you to to not only survive, but I want you to thrive. I want you to flourish. And to flourish and this time is to stop, take inventory and go back to your first love and the love that you had at the beginning. So Jesus said, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember there then how far you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That my friend is a, is a prescription for peace and it's a prescription for success in living life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And with that, I bid you peace.